Outside the Shoot would like to thank one of their sponsors, the Lynx at Penn Hills. If you're a golfer, you're going to want to check out the Lynx at Penn Hills in Shubenacadie, Nova Scotia. With nine holes wide open situated along the beautiful Shubenacadie River, and the other nine tucked into woodland, this Les Ferber design is a challenge for the best of golfers. Located just 15 minutes from the Halifax Stanfield International Airport, the Lynx at Penn Hills has become one of the best courses in Nova Scotia. For more information or to book a tee time, go to lynxatpennhills.com. Hey everyone, happy Monday once again. Hope everybody had a great Labor Day weekend and welcome to episode 12 of Outside the Shoot. I'm your host, Randy Frame. This week's OTC Player of the Week is our first ever guest on the podcast, Brookfield Elks pitcher Justin Schofield. Schofield had a great week in the Shooters Bar and Grill Fast Pitch League as he pitched 10 in the third innings, allowing only two hits and striking out a whopping 26 batters. Uh, he also may have hit a mammoth home run off myself that could still be going. Um, I'll take total blame for that. I don't know why I would lead him off with a changeup, but anyway, he hit her out. Great job, Scof. This week's guest is Canadian women's national team head coach, Mark Smith. Mark is an absolute legend when it comes to the game of fast pitch, and he is inducted into the Softball Canada Hall of Fame, ISC Hall of Fame, and the Sport Nova Scotia Hall of Fame. Mark's accomplishments are extensive. He was the first player to ever throw a no-hitter in Pan Am Games history in 1979. He won back-to-back ISC world titles in 81 and 82 with the Camarillo Kings. Led Team Canada to an ISF World Series of Softball Championship in the Philippines in 1992, as well as captured that elusive gold medal at the 1998 Canadian Senior Men's Nationals with the Halifax Jaguars in his final season of playing. We're going to talk to Mark about all of these accomplishments, as well as getting his start in the game on the Halifax Commons, having a tryout with the Kansas City Royals in Major League Baseball, and now trying to lead the Canadian women's national team to a gold medal at the 2021 Olympic Games in Tokyo, Japan. Mark was such a treat to talk to and really shows why he is such a great ambassador to the game of fast pitch. So as usual, grab that drink, sit back, relax, because here we go. I've got the world in my palm, lights, camera, action, it's on. I can't describe what I'm feeling, ain't never felt this free. good to go mark thanks for coming on the podcast well i'm glad to be here guys looking Um, forward to some softball talk yes sir i know the summer's been a little different than you were expecting uh what have you been doing since the pandemic hit well i've been uh like the first little bit it was really just kind of getting uh you know settled in terms of what we could get done and whether or not we would have to salvage you know whether we could salvage any of the summer or whether we'd be be done for the complete summer and it didn't take long into April to realize that we were in a situation where we weren't going to get on the field so we we canceled our competitive piece of the season and then we put together a six-week what we called a virtual camp which was an opportunity to keep the group together and engaged on a weekly basis and doing softball related preparation um, and we did that through the end of June and then for the last couple of months the players have really had a chance to enjoy a summer which for many of them that's been 
a long, long time uh, coming. And um, actually, uh, next Tuesday we get, or this Tuesday coming, we get back to full training in terms of our our strength and conditioning piece. And on the 12th of September, we've got a camp in BC for 11 uh, 11 players that are living in Canada. And so we'll actually get on the field for the first time since March. Wow. Oh, right on. That's good. That's good then. Uh, so with every every guest that we have on here, I ask the same question to start is, uh, when and where did you get your start in the game? Oh, boy. <laughs> um, You're going to show your age here. <laughs> my, <laughs> my, first, uh, my first experience in softball was, I want to say, 1974, 75, when uh, a few guys that I actually knew from the west end of the city had a little softball team, and I was playing baseball, and they um, they needed a pitcher, and I certainly wouldn't have called myself a pitcher, but I could turn, I could throw the ball underhand, and I could throw it for strikes, and that's really about what it amounted to. And so, I played in a couple of events with them that summer, and uh, the next summer they wanted to have a you know um, an organized team and play in a league and compete for a provincial championship and that sort of thing. And uh, and that was the summer. That would have been 1975. I actually gave baseball up. And I spent most of that winter um, pitching because I knew that I was going to play softball and I thought I kind of enjoyed the pitching piece of it. So really invested in trying to learn how to pitch, you know, properly and understand the mechanics a little bit better. And, uh, and that's sort of where it, uh, that's where it all began. Oh, right on. So your dad, Bobby, he's a recognized pitcher and umpire across the country. He, he must've obviously been your influence getting into the game. For sure. He was, um, you know, dad umpired, I think he started in 1969. So, you know, I can remember going to the Canada Games Diamond with him and going over to the Halifax Commons when there used to be softball pretty much six nights a week on the Commons and um, following him around and watching him officiate and learning who some of the better players were. And probably the Canada Games Diamond, the senior teams getting to know you know, some of the older players, the Ed Malloy's and Stan Henniger Sr. and Gary Whittier and, you know, a bunch of the, the Dairy Queen crowd, Cecil Jackson and Denny Clyke and, and that crowd were the guys that I really, they were my first experience in sort of men who played the game at the highest level available in the province. And so between following data around the comments and getting to know who some of the better players were, that was really my first exposure in the game. Nice, nice. So you you probably would have watched uh, like you know Donald Ross and 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 Lyle Carter and them. Oh, for sure, for yeah. sure. I remember watching Brookfield, Yui Matheson, and Lauren Miller, and um, Terry Mahoney pitch for them. I mean, I can remember a lot of the uh, Dave Lively played the outfield. I used to keep score on the on the scoreboard at the uh, Canada Games time. It used to be a one of those deals where you'd climb up the ladder and hang yeah. a wooden number up, and and uh, that's what I did for probably three summers between myself and my brothers. That was kind of our little, our little summer job, if you will. We were on the commons three, four nights a week. And that's what we did. And, and in between innings or when the innings were going on, we'd be out in the outfield behind the fence, throwing the ball around and, and, uh, you know, playing 500 and things like that. Yeah. So we, you know, we learned some of the, the hand-eye coordination skills really by just being kids out there and, and kind of mimicking what we watched. And, you know, eventually for me, certainly it, uh, you know, I fell in love with the game, I think because of all of those exposures. Awesome. Now I come across that you were the, the youngest player on the first ever Nova Scotia entry into the Canadian junior men's nationals. Uh, yeah, yeah, what, what do you yeah. recall? What do you recall about that event? 
I remember the trial process uh, in Halifax because I was 16, I think, and and it was a 21 year old event. So I remember going to the tryout, and I remember my father telling me to, you know, really have minimal expectations. I was five years younger, and uh, Kevin Umlaw would have been uh, one of the captains of the team that year. And Kevin had made a name for himself as a senior baseball player, but he also played softball, and I think he'd actually gone to a Montreal Expos uh, rookie camp and Becky Graham and Donnie Benoit. These guys were all, you know, three to four years older than I was. And certainly being around the Comets at that point and following the Intermediate Sea League and and, uh, and that sort of thing, I knew who they were and I knew the caliber they played. So I didn't really know where I would stack up against those guys. I just wanted the opportunity to go out and, and give it a go. And Fortunately, um, Rocky Partridge and Ronnie Clark were our coaches, and they both came from you know the senior element with Dairy Queen and uh, made that 76 team, and we played up in Nelson Machine in Brunswick and I think surprised a lot of people by coming home with a bronze medal. Wowzer. Oh, wow. Uh, so was it the year after did you go to Ontario to play junior? Actually, the next year, which would be 77, I played home. Dairy Queen, Peter Foy sponsored a junior team and again ronnie and rocky coached it and we played in the intermediate sea league which you know aside from the senior circuit would have been the most competitive league certainly in the city and arguably in the province a lot of you know older players former senior players that still wanted to play the game but didn't want to commit to the travel and the commitment of the senior played at the intermediate level so on any given evening you were going to play against men who were you know established in the game and who had had pretty successful careers so as a junior team it was a great place for us to play because certainly the competition was going to be at the very least equal to what we would see at the junior nationals and uh, it did prove to be a great uh, preparation for us because we lost in the gold medal game in saskatoon that year to grimsby ontario um, which is where I ended up going the following summer. But we, we led them one to nothing for five innings and then lost in the, in the, uh, gave up a couple of runs in the bottom of the fifth or top of the sixth. And, and we ended up losing to them. But, um, certainly that year we could make the case that we were arguably the top junior team in the country. Right. So when you did move to, like, when you moved on to Ontario, like, was that, that was that a rare occurrence back then for like somebody to leave Nova Scotia? And, and go play out of province? You know, I think so, Randy. I, I'm trying to think about who would have gone ahead of me to, to take that on, and I'm, I'm struggling to, to come up with anybody. I know that Doug Webster from Richmond Hill had come in and played for Dairy Queen, um, I want to say 73 and then maybe 75 or somewhere along there. And I'd gotten to know Doug. He came to Nova Scotia as a 19, 20-year-old pitcher, and I was hanging around the commons and hanging around the dugouts, and he had a very uh, interesting pitching delivery. He crow-hopped, which was mm-hmm. no one no one in, in this part of the country did that. And what I liked about it was it really recruited the use of your legs, and it really allowed you to be explosive off the mound. So, you know, I kind of befriended Doug, and, and he came out and worked with me and, and showed me how to use my legs properly and, and kind of synchronized that with my arm circle. And um, I really credit him with being the person who gave me, a, you know, gave me a great foundation in terms of leg drive and how to utilize that. I mean, Stan Henninger Sr. and Ed Malloy were two other senior pitchers who were extremely um, generous with their time and, and spent lots of time talking to me and coaching me and telling me the types of things and showing me grips and spins. And But uh, as far as the lower half went, Doug would have been the person who, who showed me that. So, um, 
the year I went to Grimsby in 98, he had actually called me um, right around Christmas of that year. And he was back home playing in Richmond Hill and asked if I wanted to come up and play senior in Richmond Hill. And, um, you know, talked it over with my folks and the Grimsby opportunity had also been offered around the same time. And we just felt that for me to leave home and go to Ontario, which at that point in time was by far the hotbed of men's fast pitch in the country where the best softball was played, it was probably a pretty big thing to try to bite off as a 17-year-old to go play in senior in Ontario. Um, so I decided that I would go play with Grimsby, who were the team that had defeated us the previous year in the national finals. And we did play in the senior league, um, but not against the top um, OFL teams, Ontario teams. But uh, um, yeah, I, I think, you know, as I think about it, Randy and, and Chris, I probably was the first local player that went to Ontario or went left the province to play in a bigger province where the game was well established. Right on. Now, did you guys, did you guys win that year that you were up there? Oh gosh, no, we, we didn't get out of Ontario. We lost to uh, Brad Underwood, um, who oh, went wow. on to become an exceptional pitcher as yes. everybody knows, but uh, we lost to him, Andy in the, I don't know, maybe it was the quarterfinals. We didn't get to the finals. So it was a little disappointing that way, but just an incredible experience. I mean, we went down to, Kitchener-Waterloo to watch the Ontario Provincials that July, and it was a 32-team double elimination tournament, and it was as competitive as any national championship you'd ever attend. And um, again, because of the size of the province of Ontario, played against a lot of exceptionally talented players and, and teams, some of them some of the men kind of beyond their best days, but no question that it was a, a proving ground for me, and I learned a lot that summer. So in, in 1979... You uh, you threw the first ever no hitter in Pan Am Games history, striking out twenty two batters, and you were twenty years old at the time, was it? I was, yeah. I would yeah. have just turned twenty. Yeah. Was, it, was that in San yeah. Juan? It was. It so, was. Uh, what, what do you recall about about that event? That must have been pretty eye opening for you. <laughs> well, that that summer was a, an ex- exceptional experience because that was the summer that I, I moved to Victoria to play with the Victoria Budgets, who at that point in time were the five time defending national champions and they were the defending world champions. So and that was in a day when the club team every four years that won your national went to the world championship. So I, uh, I had gone up to St. John, New Brunswick in August of 78 to watch the senior men's with a bunch of local players, just to really to go see what it looked like, given that it was that close and wound up um, being introduced to Harvey Stevenson, who was the, the head coach of the Victoria team and asked if I would come to a practice and throw a few pitches. And, and as I came to find after the fact, I believe it was Howie Spears who had mentioned to Harvey that there was a young left-handed kid from Nova Scotia that was a pretty good pitcher that he might want to take a look at. So I was watching a game, actually, when Harvey approached me, and, and uh, I didn't have any equipment. I didn't have sneakers. Um, I think I was in sandals, and I had to borrow a pair of somebody else's sneakers to do it. But long story short, I went over to a Victoria pregame practice and and the out, one of the outfielders let me a glove and I had somebody else's sneakers on and I you know you're doing your best to get warmed up but the long and the short of it is you're you're scared out of your mind because yeah. of yeah. who's who's watching and how good this team is but you know after about 15 or 20 minutes of throwing I guess I did enough right that they asked me if I wanted to move to Victoria and um, so that next summer you know we would have gone into Clearwater Florida on the way to the Pan Ams and the Clearwater Bombers were an ASA powerhouse and uh, on my 20th birthday I know hit them so that was really kind of a highlight wow. of the experience for me and then about a week later 
against Venezuela, who you know were an, were an okay team to be honest, but certainly weren't the best team at the Pan Ams. Um, you know, I was able to know hit them as well, so that was a pretty that was a pretty fun summer. Wow. So, what was uh, what do you remember about the, you know how how it was in Puerto Rico at the time? Well, the United States came with an all star team, and we were a club team that had four pickups. It was a bit of a unique situation in that. Um, Softball Canada didn't have an, have an all-star team. So what they did was they um, held a selection camp in Victoria and they allowed Victoria to name, there were 17 players to be named on the final roster and they allowed Victoria to name 14 and they had to leave three positions open to be competed for. Okay. And one, one of the things Victoria told me when I agreed to play in, you know, what it would have been, I guess, September, or October of 78 was they said, if you come here, we will guarantee you that you're on the Pan Am roster. So you will not be a player that has to, to uh, compete. So that was a, a big plus for me and a confidence boost for sure. But we, um, you know, we had a selection camp and, and actually Mike Henderson from Brookfield um, was made the team that year. Uh, Cliff Bishop from, uh, Manitoba made the team that year. Um, and they were, you know, they both contributed, you know, to our winning, but the United States had an all-star team and they had Ty Stoffler, who was hands down at that point in time, the best pitcher in the world. And we ended up playing them three times over the course of that event. And the first two times we played them, he shut us out and we ended up beating him for a gold medal game in 13, for a gold medal in 13 innings. And that's the only run he gave up against us the entire tournament. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, it absolutely was. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So 1981, you were 21. You joined the Camarillo Kings in California. How did how did that all come about? Well, living in Victoria in 79 and 80, we had a lot of, we played in a league that had more teams that were American than Canadian because Seattle is about a two and a half hour drive. So right. yeah. we had Seattle Pay and Pack, who at the time were the reigning U.S. national champions. So you had the Canadian senior men's national champions in Victoria and Seattle, which were the U.S. national champions in Seattle, at playing in the same league, in the Pacific uh, Northwest League. There was three teams, I think, out of Vancouver, and then the rest of them were out of the state of Washington, and I think one out of Oregon. So we played U.S. teams a fair bit. And what happened was Camarillo in 19... 19- 80 came up to play us what we we had these designated weekends called super series and it was three or four weekends of summer when we didn't play league play that we had touring teams come in so in 1980 for example the world championships were held in in seattle we didn't we lost to ontario in the final in 79 newfoundland so we didn't win the right to go so we hosted the Ontario team for a series. We had the U.S. national team, um, which was Midland, Michigan, come in for a series. We had um, Santa Rosa, which were a perennial powerhouse in the U.S. in for a series. And we had this team out of Camarillo that no one knew about. Um, I'm not sure how they found their way to Victoria, but the long and the short is that they came in towards the end of July and they played us a four-game series. And we swept them the four games, but their defense was something that you'd see on television. I mean, they probably turned half a dozen double plays, which back in those days was unheard of. Right? Um, they just played flawless defense. I mean, we beat them because their pitching was not strong enough to hold us, but it, we didn't beat them, you know, bad by any stretch. It was two nothing, three nothing, four nothing, that sort of thing. But I came away really impressed with how sound their defense was, and. Um, Truth be told, Rob Ginter was my roommate, and he was playing in Victoria at the time. And he would have been 
the top pitcher in Canada, and they actually were were interested in Rob. And um, but Rob had just moved to Victoria, and his wife to be um, was moving to Victoria, and they had made their minds up that they were gonna that was going to be you know where they wanted to live. So he declined when they contacted him, but he said, you might be interested in my roommate. And um, I had pitched against them and, and, you know, against them while they were here as well. So in October, the sponsor uh, flew me down to California for a week and I got to meet the players and I got to learn a little bit about the area and the Western Softball Congress that they played out of was uh, in 1982, I think it was given a designation as the top most competitive men's fast pitch league in North America. So you had a lot of ex major league baseball people. It, it proved to be an extremely, extremely competitive league. But I came home from, from the visit in October of, 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 of 80 and, um, really struggled because Victoria had sort of become home and I really thought I wanted to go back to Victoria. But when you're 21 years old and somebody is inviting you to live in Southern California and play <laughs> softball. <laughs> yeah. So I made the, I made the decision to try that and obviously don't regret that I did. Um, but I moved down in, I guess it would have been February of that year and our league star play started sometime late March. And I spent uh, two great summers um, playing ball there. Nice. Well, you kind of touched on my next question was, I was going to ask how, just how tough the Western Softball Congress was back in the day. Well, <laughs> I'll tell you a quick story. I, uh, my first game in the league, we were going to, no, it wasn't my first game. I guess it would have been our first away game. Um, we were going to play a team called the Oceanside Bombers, and they were from the San Diego area, and they had four guys that had made it to high double A, low triple A baseball. So they were they were good players, and they were you know they were talented men, and I they were the team to beat in the league, and and everybody talked about how good they were, and you know I'm coming in from Canada and feeling pretty good about myself, and and probably a little too confident, and <laughs> we're driving down to play them one Sunday afternoon, and and one of the guys and, and that was sitting in the car said to me, "How many runs are you going to need to win this game?" And I said, "Ah, get me one or two, you know, we'll be good." <laughs> well, <laughs> we lost nine eight, <laughs> and I and I threw all seven innings, <laughs> oh, <shit. laughs> and I remember when we got when we got in the car, <laughs> when we got in the car to make our way back to Cam Real, he kind of had that dead silence for a minute and he looks over at me and he goes one or two eh <laughs> <laughs> you know and that was kind of my introduction to uh, the Oceanside Bombers so uh, wow. I, I gained an awful lot of respect and learned a lot in, 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 a, in a Sunday afternoon against them <laughs> <laughs> I, I know the feeling Mark <laughs> yeah you do yeah I do so, so you won the ISE title with uh, Camarillo in 81 and 82. Uh, yeah. Talk about the feeling winning that first one. You know, Randy, it's, it's, it's a funny thing. We, um, we were a, a good team. I mentioned earlier about the defensive skills, but we, that summer we played in three or four tournaments and won them all. And our league play, I think we finished third in the league. I mean, we were respectable for sure, but when we showed up at tournaments, it was like a switch got flipped and we just could play at this next level. And certainly I had a very strong summer. I pitched really well that summer. And, and uh, um, you know, we just, we, we won some big games. We won some close games. We won against some good teams. So therefore you get confidence going because you start to realize you can compete against the best. And then by the time we got to Saginaw to the ISC, um, 
you know, our draw the first night we actually should have lost. We opened up against St. Louis and I didn't pitch particularly well. I gave up a run in the first inning and I struggled a lot of it and nerves were a big part of it. And then in the seventh inning, um, we had a walk and two singles and we won a ball game two to one against a team that should have beaten us. And from that point forward, I mean, that, that was the, the sort of the hurdle we needed to get over. No one came close. You know, after that, we beat everybody pretty handily. And then the second year in, in uh, Kimberly, Wisconsin, same sort of thing. The first game, I you know, was a good ball game. Myself and Michael White went eight innings, and it was no score. And uh, we put in an older guy to pinch hit that happened to be a really good change-up hitter. And for whatever the reason, Whitey started him off with a change-up, and he hit it out. <laughs> and uh, we beat him one nothing. And the same thing after that, we just got it rolling, and that was it. So... It, it uh, I mean, it's a great tournament. I, 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 one of the things that I, I've come to really appreciate was in those days, it was a 48-team double knockout tournament. And right. so the tournament started on Friday night. And quite literally, you could have teams that were knocked out of the tournament before some teams played their first game on Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> because the moment you lost, you fell into the loser's bracket. You had to win an ungodly number of games, something like 14 games over the course of the week to get back to play in a, in a final so, you know, it was just an extremely uh, competitive tournament. And I would say, no exaggeration, that there were eight or ten teams in that tournament that were capable of winning. I mean, everybody had a, a world-class pitcher. You know, M- Madison had Peter Meredith, and mm-hmm. and uh, Midland had Peter Finn, and Whitey played for... Um, I think he played for Texas. Chubb Tangaroa played for Long Beach. Uh, Paul McGann and, and played for Bakersfield. I mean, it didn't matter. Every night, somebody trotted out there. Kevin Hurley, he played for the host team. Every night, somebody trotted out there that was world-class, they could beat you. Right. And so it really was impressive. And, and when I look back now and look at over the years how the formats changed and, and obviously the quality of the teams have changed, um, you know, the, really it, it I'm more impressed by what we accomplish as the years go up, go by, because I don't think at the time when you're in it, you recognize just how much of a challenge it is and how highly competitive it was. Mm. But when you look back on it now and you sort of compare it to the evolution of the game over the last 30 years or so, that was in a highly competitive time, and and uh, we we played against some very very good teams. Well, yeah, I mean, like the fact that the f- format was like that back then, and you guys were able to go back to back. I mean that that makes it even even more impressive. Yeah, I mean it's it's like anything else, and you guys both know you need a break. You luck, you know, luck favors the prepared, and and we were coached very well. And the Western Softball Congress, I can tell you, in '81, we won it. And Oceanside finished fourth. I think in the top 10 that year at the ISC, if I'm not mistaken, four of the teams from our league finished in the top 10. Wow. And the next year, we played Bakersfield in the final, and Bakersfield played in our league. So, you know, it was safe to say that if you were playing in Southern California at that time, you were not, there was not going to be a better proving ground. And then Bakersfield had an invitational tournament in June of each year that was much like a national championship. You had Decatur, Illinois come out and play. You had Aurora Home Savings come out and play. Seattle would come down and play. Um, Salt Lake City would come down and play. So you had this, this, you know, double elimination club team tournament in addition to the 40-odd games you played in league play, yeah. where you got to see the best teams in the U.S. because they all wanted to come west 
for the competition. To play the best. So, right. Exactly. So we were fortunate in that we didn't have to go anywhere to get the competition, and anybody that wasn't part of our league would often come to us. Before we move on, Outside the Shoot would like to thank one of their sponsors, Prodigy Sports. Located at 9 Simmons Road in Bedford, Nova Scotia, Prodigy Sports is your leading supplier of team, league, and school sporting good products. Prodigy Sports prides itself in its unique working relationships with all the major name brands in the athletic industry and has an extremely close working relationship with sporting good manufacturers around the world. This combination makes Prodigy Sports your number one supplier of sports equipment, clothing, and supplies. Please join them by looking further into their website, prodigy-sports.com, and discovering the world of Prodigy Sports right at your fingertips. If you have any questions about their company or any of their products, please feel free to contact them at 902-446-4645. My next question is, you've probably been asked this a lot, but how did the tryout with the Kansas City Royals come about? Um, it came about of the, from the ISC in, in 81 in Saginaw. Um, so I'm told uh, that there was a, a a police officer behind the, the backstop that had a radar gun. And supposedly I was clocked at 104 miles an hour a pitch or two pitches or something like that. So I knew nothing of any of this. And then I'm home in October. This is a true story. And we had a guy on our team named Bert Tate who was a practical joker and was always pulling stunts on people and uh, so the phone rings at my parents house and and it's Dick Balderson from the Kansas City Royals who was the head of their scouting and he introduces himself and you know he tells me the story of a man who was at the event in Saginaw that was a friend of the owner of the Royals Ewan Kaufman that said there was this black kid from Canada that controlled the ball yada yada and at the time Dan Crisenberry was their reliever and if you remember he had that submarine style delivery And I think they were thinking, well, boy, what if we could go left and right with, you know, that kind of a delivery? I mean, that's what I think they were conjuring up. But the long and the short of it is when when Dick Balderson called my house, I thought it was Bert Gate. (laughs) And I thought he was I thought he was putting me on. So I let it go for a little while. Then I ended up hanging up on it. And so 10 minutes later, the phone rings again. Again, and it's he comes back. He says, "I really am. I really am Dick Baldwin. So I don't know who you think I am, but I really am who I say I am." Of course, now you feel like a complete ass. <laughs> yeah. um, so the um, they invited me to spring training in uh, in whatever it would have been February, I guess of of, um, of yeah, I guess it would have been eighty two. And and I was committed to go back to Camarillo, and and I spoke to the owner and. He felt that it was a too good an opportunity to pass up. You know, he said, if you have a chance to play Major League Baseball for a living as much as we'd love to have you back here, I don't think you can not try this. So what we did was we we looked for we I, I couldn't go in or I didn't want to go into the full-on schedule because our league was starting and I felt I owed it to my teammates to be there, um, you know, for the league play. But it just so happened we had a two-week break. Uh, somewhere in just before the end of spring training. And that was the time that we agreed that I would go in. And so I went in and I stayed about six days and, you know, I pitched a little bit and, and um, you know, they, they were, I think, prepared to offer me a minor league contract. And, you know, but I just felt like I looked around at that environment. And at that time there were guys like Danny Jackson and Mark Bubaza. And, uh, you know, they were, they, they were a very competitive program. And I showed up after they had started to kind of weed guys out. So I roomed with a couple of AAA guys and it was a neat experience, but it just didn't grab me the way 
softball had. And I had played baseball as a kid, so I was so much familiar. But I, I felt like I had a bird in the hand in California. You know, I liked where I lived. I liked the sport I was playing. I was playing for a good team. Um, I knew what I had in softball because my skills at that point had developed to the point where, you know, I was in the conversation among the best in the game. And I felt like, why would I give what I have up and what I know up to take a shot at going and playing a couple of years of minor league baseball and who knows you hurt your arm. You can't come back and pick up where you left off with softball and you don't have, you don't have anything. So, you know, there were times for sure when I'd see when Danny Jackson eventually made it up to the majors, I remember thinking to myself, because I watched him pitch and respectfully, I thought he's good, but you know, I, I don't know that I couldn't do some of those same things, but, um, you know, at the end of the day, I'm glad I did what I did. And it was a neat experience to go and spend a week in that environment and sort of see what it was all about. But, uh, yeah, I, I finished. I, I ended up where I should have been, as far as I'm concerned. Hundred percent. Oh, for sure. Uh, I'm going to skip a few, skip ahead of a few years here. Uh, 1992, pretty big year. Uh, yeah, you yeah, got, it you was. Got, you guys won <laughs> ISF uh, gold medal in Manila, yeah. Philippines. Uh, you had yeah. a uh, a double that brought in two runs in the eighth inning. Uh, how was the feeling? You know, not only to win the gold medal, but to you know contribute in a big way. Well, to be honest with you, it was, um, I knew that that was going to be my last go at it because I was just sort of at a place in my life where career wise and family wise, that the national team and living back in Nova Scotia, it was getting harder to maintain the level that I knew I would need to be able to play. Because when you, you know, when I was 27, 28 and moved home and was playing locally, you know, the ball was competitive, but I was also leaving and going to the U S for, you know, two or three weeks a, a summer. And I was playing again in California, playing against the top level competition. So I always had a bit of a gauge as to where my skills were, but by the time we got to 92, I wasn't traveling as much anymore to the U S I was playing primarily local and, um, and I knew that I felt like I had it in me to, to work hard and, and be prepared for really the summer before I, I went to the Pan Am games, uh, in 91 and then the, the, the ISF in 92. So going into that, knowing that it was my last international opportunity was certainly, uh, in you know, a motivator to play well and perform as, as, as well as we could. And it was a March event, which created its own challenges because, um, we had to train independently all winter long. And then we went in, we went to Hawaii, I guess maybe about three weeks ahead before the, before the event. And we trained in Hawaii, but we trained among ourselves because there wasn't any competition to play. So it was inner squad every other day and those sorts of things. And then, you know, you show up to play the Aussies and the Kiwis and, and these teams that are in season because it's their summer. Right. Um, so you sort of don't know what you're going to do, but what we did know was that our, our pitching was always world-class. We had Zach and Pietnik and Jody and Terry Bell and, and I was the fifth in the rotation by then if they needed it. And so we went in there feeling pretty good about that. And of the guys that were on our starting roster, all were battle hardened with national championships. Marty Kernigan was the captain of national healthcare who were the, you know, at that point, the ISC's best. And so we had a, a good core nucleus. Daryl Clarkson played first base and he was an extremely good hitter from BC. So, you know, we thought we had a shot at it and, um, it just so turned out that we were on one side of the draw and New Zealand was on the other side of the draw. And, um, we didn't see one another until playoffs and, um, we beat them, um, 
the first playoff game, and then I think we drew the U.S. and we beat the U.S. and then we got New Zealand back. And you know, the thing that I think I'm most proud of about that win was that our, the run scored for Canada in that game were by Jody Henniger and myself. Oh, and wow. um, you, you'd go a long way to have you know two guys from a, a little obscure province like ours yeah. to end up being the difference, you know, in a World Championship game. So I'm certainly happy, you know, that I, I was able to contribute, in, you know, in the eighth inning and drive in those runs, but I'm equally as proud that it was Jody and I that ended up being a deciding factor yeah. in Canada winning that medal. That's awesome. I, 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 well, that, that's kind of like Newfoundland today yeah, because like, all the national yes. team members, yeah, you look at those guys yeah. and you're going to get one or two of those guys that are going to get hits for sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm in, you know, the thing about Newfoundland is that, that I find so unique uh, is that, you know, for years and it, during my tenure as a senior player, Newfoundland really weren't they didn't produce world-class players. You, you never went to the Nationals worried about playing Newfoundland. But what they had was they had a league over there that's about 60 years old where they've kept stats and they've had a draft. And teams didn't – no one team got to become dominant because every year you drafted players. So right. when when kids graduate from junior, like I think the guys like Mullally and, and Hilly and some of these guys, they didn't get to pick where they went to play. They got drafted by a team. Now, you could trade. Mm-hmm. But you didn't you didn't necessarily go to play for who you wanted to play for. Yeah. And what they were doing was they were creating parity. And so as the game in Canada started to suffer, and I would say any time from sort of mid nineties forward, you started to see a decline in 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 the number of teams and the quality of talent and, and those things for a lot of reasons. The nukes were over there quietly running their league and growing their players. And then you started to see some of these young guys like Malali leave home at 17, 18, and they would go play for the lesser talented teams at the ISC level because they'd get to play. Yeah. And lo and behold, five or six years later, when they're 23, 24, 25, they've got five or six ISCs under their belts. They've got a ton of experience playing the game. And um, and by the time they get a chance to play internationally, they're, they're more than ready to play. And so yeah. to see what the Noofs have done has really almost been ingenious because I would say that they've had the most stable development system in men's fast pitch for the last you know 50 years and nobody knew it yeah <laughs> yeah that's so true actually it's <laughs> showing very much so yeah, right now. yeah. <laughs> it absolutely absolutely it is yeah i want to talk about you coming back home starting to play with the halifax keys uh you guys had some pretty stacked teams there in the 90s didn't you <laughs> well you know it's when i came home i guess i came home in 86 87 and played five years for different teams in the province and the thing that really stuck it with in my mind the most was and and this is not a criticism it's just it's it's a fact and that because there was no expectations to win or be successful you know we winning the provincial championship was sort of the big ticket item you won the right to go to the nationals and then you went to the nationals and then as long as you weren't the worst team from Atlantic Canada that was sort of the yeah. that right. was sort of the thing you wanted to be and and I I just couldn't get used to that I mean I had been played on some of the best club teams in North America and in the world and to come home and just be happy to go to the nationals just wasn't something that I really could could live with and so I kind of got to a place around 92 where you know, I said to my wife, if I can't find a sponsor and start to go out and recruit some of these young guys who have not been tarnished yet in terms of not believing that they can compete at the next level, because like anything else, if you go to the nationals enough times and you get your hat handed to you, 
it's pretty hard to believe you can when you never have. Right. right. And I felt like if I could find a core nucleus of young players who had had some success at junior and who had yet to decide whether they felt they could or they couldn't, then for me, it would give me a chance to go and compete with guys that I felt I could help raise the level of their play. And if I were going to play for a few more years, that's where I really wanted to invest my time and energy. So fortunately, Rand Kellogg at the brewery, who's a former senior men's player himself, um, was of like mind. And we, we just kind of came, it came along at the right time for them in terms of looking to sponsor something local. And, um, and I was able to <laughs> recruit guys like Todd King and Scott Hirschman and Glennie Edwards and Barry Wright and, and guys that were local guys that all were decent players, but had never played together. And then the next step in that process was to build a schedule so that we could get exposure to the best teams so that they could learn what it was going to take to win. So uh, immediately each summer, we would go to the Perth shootout in Perth, Ontario, but we would book the week week off before and we would go up and play a bunch of exhibition doubleheaders against teams and then play the Perth shootout. And it was a way to kind of gauge where we were against Ontario teams because, again, in the years that I had come home, when we got to nationals, you know, we played some of the better teams pretty solid for three, four, five innings. But the problem was eventually, you know, second time through the order, whatever the case um, they always hey their hitting could make the adjustment our hitting couldn't and so we would end up losing games against the better teams because we just didn't have enough experience against them to know what it was going to take so my thoughts were we had to get the team to Ontario and get the guys exposed to this and at that time um, Summerside we're going to host the 94 ISCs and I saw that as another opportunity to get some local guys to ISCs for a few years so I looked at it as a bit of a development process to build towards you know, hopefully challenging for a national championship. And, you know, hopefully you came to, to uh, Saskatoon in 94. And yes, um, I think that's when we kind of came of age. Like we, we realized that we could compete with the Saskatoons and the Gators and Victoria yeah. and some of the better teams. And, and from that point forward, I think it was just a case of, um, you know, needing to continue to see the good stuff so that we could be better able to adjust. But by the time 98 nationals came around, um, you know, we were ready to compete because we had five or six years of playing the best in the country competition wise to prepare ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Hobie was telling me before we started this, I think he had a, he had a, he had a little story that, uh, when, yeah. when you were with the keys. So I never, ever did tell you this. I, I would have been playing with, I don't even know if it was East Hans or Brookfield, but we'd be playing you guys. And, uh, Sean Kelly was catching you. Uh, this might've happened on a couple of different occasions. You're probably going to be pissed off at him, but whatever. Um, <laughs> So now, Mark, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit younger than you are and, and you threw yes. very well, very hard. And uh, when I would get in the box, I would, you know, not, not going to lie, a little bit nervous, of course, but I can remember Sean, who was a pretty good friend. Sean would say, Hopi, <laughs> drop ball coming. <laughs> I was like, I was like, what? <laughs> okay, thanks. I remember getting a couple hits off you and I'd like you to, if you ever run into Cal, you can thank him for that because he was telling me what was coming. <laughs> He's a beauty. Yeah, I had two hits off Mark Smith. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, good. Next time I see Sean, I'll check. I'll check that out. Absolutely. <laughs> he may deny it, but you did it, Sean. <laughs> it, so in uh, so in 1997, Mark, you guys, uh, you started the Halifax Jaguars. Uh, how did that come about? Because I mean, that was that was my can of the games year. And I can remember okay. pl- 
playing playing against you guys and the Halifax Keys, and I just found it yeah. crazy that you know there was two of these senior caliber teams, dominant both teams. yeah, dominant yeah. teams in yeah. in Nova Scotia and in Halifax. So so how did that all come about? Well, it was kind of a confluence of things. We had gone to uh, Kitchener Waterloo in '96, the Nationals, and, and again had a respectable showing, but. I think we finished around fifth or sixth. We couldn't quite get over the hump. And I was frustrated by that. And, and I felt like there was some things we needed to change to, to be able to go, you know, to, to the next level. And, you know, Rand was, he was in agreement with it, I think for the most part, but it was a matter of whether or not we could get that done. And at the same time, Gordy Rudolph, who'd been a, a good friend. In fact, Gordy and I played together. We first met on that 76 junior team you talked about, he was one of our, one of our infielders. Okay. And we, we have, we've had a friendship from that point forward, you know, and, and, and remain close. So he, um, he's a very, you know, accomplished dentist and real estate person here in the, in, in the province. And he is from the South shore, the, the Eastern shore. And he called me probably in September or so. And he said, look, you know, I'd like to do something. He had a practice in, in Dartmouth and he had a practice in, and she Harbor, and he said, I'd like to do something for the local guys to play ball around here. You know, there's just not a lot for them. And at that point, I think Joey Martin and Sheet Harbor had been trying to keep things alive for a long time. And I think was maybe near the end of it for Joey to, to be moving on. And so, um, you know, there were guys from down to that Sheet Harbor, Mosier River area that Gordy wanted to do something for. So really, as a friend, we just started to talk about, you know, the kinds of things he needed to do and where did they want to play and what kind of team did they want to have and what kind of budget did he want to spend. And, and it just started with that. And then, you know, slowly but surely, you know, it, he, he asked about would I be interested in being involved. And, and I knew that, you know, Keith had bid to host the 98 Nationals. And I was kind of thinking I wanted to hang around and play in that. And, you know, the more Gordy and I talked um, and the more he wanted to do something, um, you know, locally for guys, but I knew from a dollars and cents perspective, he was committed to be able to do what it was going to take. And, you know, the Keys program, as I said, I felt like we were, we were getting where we needed to be, but there were some things that, you know, that could change or needed to change. And at the end of it all, I just sort of thought, you know what, I, you know, I like the idea of, I knew that there was a nucleus of players and the local guys that would likely follow me. Um, and I told them all, you do what you want to do, but I'm, I'm going to go do this because I'd like to do this with Gordy. And, um, and so Todd King and Scott Hirschman and I think Glennie Edwards, there was three or four of them that just said, look, if you're going, we're going. And that's that. And, you know, you probably remember too, Randy and Chris, all of the hoopla that went with that. And, and there was a whole lot of press and, yeah, you know, was, what, yeah. but, but the long and the short of it was, is, you know, Gordy was a friend. Um, he wanted to have a team. I felt like we could put together a pretty good team to be able to compete in the province. I felt like we could be another team that could, um, you know, up the quality of play. You know, if Keith were here and if the Jaguars were here. So in 97, we decided, um, you know, the other thing was the dollars and cents, the nationals were going to be in Victoria. And I felt like once again, I wanted to dip into the pool of bringing along a few younger players. So there were guys like Jeff Cameron and, Jason Ferris and Greg Lowe and Dave McDowell, who they'd played some um, senior ball, but they were kind of on the periphery of it. They hadn't had a lot of real experience in it. And I felt like it would be really important to get this team an experience so that we could build to be ready to be competitive in 98. So we went to Perth and we did the week-long tour of Ontario. And we actually played the New Zealand national team that was touring and we beat them. 
and we beat Salt Lake City in the first shootout. Um, you know, we, we played pretty well. We beat some pretty good teams. I mean, we didn't win it, but we were competitive. We played the farm a couple of times and were respectable. And so we decided to register in immediate aid and um, played in that here locally, and we, we won that tournament. And then we added basically three players for 98. We had Colin Abbott, uh, we had Todd Martin, and then a young shortstop out of Minimum Cook, New Brunswick, Ricky LeBlanc. Um, he ended up coming down and playing for us for the summer. And it was that plus sort of the core, the nucleus that we'd had. And then Gerald Musler had been a guy that I had spent a lot of time with. I brought him to the Keys program to give him his first sort of taste of senior. He was um, he played for Keys for a few years. Uh, he had some illegal pitch troubles in Victoria. They basically, you know, illegal pitched him out of the tournament. And... Um, I think he was pretty disheartened with all of it. And, and he came to me that fall and said, you know, I, you know, I want to, I want to clean this up and I want to play. And, and so I said, well, you know, if you come play for us, we'll get the illegal pitch thing sorted out and we'll work all winter and we'll get things done. And we did do that. And so, um, that was kind of it. And it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. It was good people. Um, you know, they were a good group of guys. You know, when I think about teams I've played on and been a part of, you know, there's there's few teams you play for where there isn't drama of some type, and and this was a group of men that were just a lot of fun to be around. They um, it was a nice melding of younger guys who hadn't really had a lot of experience with a few older guys that had been around a little bit. And then when Todd and and Colin came along, they were great because they of course provided that veteran leadership. And you know things went really well for us, and we ended up having a successful summer. And then at the, the week of the nationals was one of those magical weeks and. To have it at home, of course, was, you know, you couldn't ask for more. And both of our teams, again, very proud of the fact that I was a part of both of those franchises to play in a gold medal game. And, um, you know, fortunately for us, we came out on the, on the, on the winning end of it. But I was pretty proud for softball in Nova Scotia um, when it was all said and done because I thought it really did represent us well in terms of how much we had grown over the previous seven or eight years as a, as a province in the game. Yeah, I can I can remember watching that that final game down there. Musi was just he, he was lights, lights out, out in that that final game. I mean, a one nothing game. It would, did Barry Barry hit a solo shot? Yeah, yeah. Barry did off Jody in the top of the seventh. Yes, he hit one out to left field. That's right too. Yeah, and and the yeah. fact that you know there was fifty five hundred people there watching the game. I mean, that's a mm-hmm. that's a true testament to what you know, like what the game meant back then in ninety eight. And all the people supporting it. Well, it was. There's no question that I believe softball Nova Scotia lost out on a huge marketing opportunity after that '98 championship because the game's popularity. And you're right. That week at nationals, I remember um, somebody saying it might have been Daryl Idle I was talking to, and he chaired that tournament. And most senior tournaments, you you need to get to Friday or Saturday to kind of break even financially and pay the bills and pay your you know your fee to to Softball Canada. And at that tournament, they said that after the Wednesday night games, they had paid all of their debts, and from Wednesday from Thursday forward was profit. Um, and I mean, it, you know, and, and it was that was a testament to we had great weather, but we also had great fan support, yeah. and uh, for sure, it was one of our prouder moments, I think, as a province in the in the in the men's game. Yeah. Avalon Fundamentals Fast Pitch Program was founded in 2017 with a goal to develop the skills of fast pitch players in Newfoundland at the grassroots level. Branded as Avalon Wave, the program is based out of the metro region of St. John's, Newfoundland, a well-known hotbed of fast pitch on the world stage. 
The Avalon Wave Base Program is offered to athletes aged 3 to 12 years old and runs for eight weeks throughout the summer. The station-to-station base training allows for development through proper instruction and repetition. All the drills are communicated to the volunteer coaches in advance of the training session, such that the proper techniques are taught with each station. Starting with 60 athletes in 2017, the Avalon Wave membership reaches over 300 participants in 2020 through base program and additional camps and clinics. Avalon Wave believes that the success in growing the sport lies with building a strong foundation through developing the sport as a whole players, coaches, umpires, and volunteers. Through the countless volunteers that offer help each summer, Avalon Wave has seen extended not only the growth in the base program, but has recently developed both a boys and girls fast pitch team, which are getting ready to compete off the island in 2021. Any information regarding the program can be found on their website or through their social links, Facebook and Instagram. They hope everyone is staying safe and are looking forward to seeing you at the park soon. Now, after that, you, uh, well, you were already coaching with the national team a couple of years before that, weren't you? I did. I got involved in 96 uh, as an assistant coach with the men's team. Yeah. Was it, was coaching at the national level always in the plans for you? You know, Randy, it really wasn't, <laughs> to oh. be honest with you. Um, after 94, I went on a tour of New Zealand with the team. It's sort of a, New Zealand had invited us over, I think, to kind of exercise the demons from from us beating them in '92, and <laughs> um, and uh, I went on that tour, and I knew that I was done, but I just went so that I could play and kind of be around the guys one more time, and and um, I was done with it, and then the next year, um, you know, the senior team were looking to restock. There was a few guys that had retired my, from that team, be myself being one, and Terry Bader had asked me if I would be willing to come in and and serve as a guest coach. And so I went to that event. It was in Perth and uh, they put a development team in the Perth tournament. And I was sort of part of the staff that helped with that. And it was, it was fun to be around it. I was coaching here locally, of course, at that time. So I was, was coaching, but Mm. um, only after I came back from that, that I start to think about, you know, is that something I'd like to do? And then of course there's the time off element of it and those challenges. But after, um, after the 95, when he invited me to the, selection camp in 96 and then eventually to the world championships in Midland. That's when I knew when I came back from Midland that that was, this was something I'd like to be able to do. And I knew I was near the end of playing um, and would have to be because I couldn't possibly do both. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so, you know, I got a chance to go to, uh, go to the world championships. And then I think in 98, we went to a Pan Am qualifier, which was my last summer of playing. And then I, I jumped in the coaching in a big way and at at that level in 99. Right. So you were with the men's national team until 2009. Uh, is there, is there any players or, or moments that stick out over that time? Wow. Um, you know, we, the 2003 Pan Am team for sure, because we, we defended the title and that was the, the year, um, when the Pan Am and the ISC ran at the same time. And we knew going into 2003 that, we could not possibly field our best team because of ISC commitments and guys were very upfront about that. And we knew it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we took a group to the qualifier in Guatemala the previous November, but it had to be kind of speckled with guys that were probably going to be on the 2004 world championship team and guys that we were going to need to be able to compete in 2003. And, um, and that group were, you know, there was not a lot expected. I mean, if we're being honest, it was uh, our pitching staff was 
Nick Underhill, who was had never pitched on the national team before, uh, Ricky Smith, who had played on the junior team in '89, um, Trevor Ethier, uh, Sean um, Sean um, Witten, who had never played on a national team, Timmy McCumber played first base and pitched a little bit, and Mike Crawford from Ontario. So we went to that tournament with a, really a bunch of unheralded players. Um, players that would have been considered respectfully B-listers right. based on who wasn't there. I mean, we didn't have Abbott. We didn't have um, Chris Jones. We didn't have any of the guys that would have been the players that would have been the wholesale names, you know, at the ISC level. And uh, we went 7-0 and won the tournament <laughs> and beat the Americans twice, you know. And and so I'm, I'm proud of them because they, they shouldered the, they shouldered the stress of, not wanting to be the team to lose the gold medal because to that point, I think we had won six or seven consecutive gold. Mm-hmm. And so they not, they go in there as they kind of know they're the underdogs. There's a bit of an inferiority deal because you know that at every club tournament they go to leading to the Pan Am games, everybody's reminded them of who's not there. Yeah. Right. And that's why, that's why they are there. And, and I mean, you know, there's, there's some truth to that, but at the same time, they were respectable players in their own right, but then they have to go to this event and they don't want to be the team that, let Canada down. Right. Mm-hmm. And so they carry, they carry that with them for, you know, that entire summer and to watch them play, we were losing the gold medal game two to one in the uh, fifth inning. And, uh, you know, Robbie Giesberg has a huge night at the plate. He hit a bomb off the of whitey and Ronnie white had a big base hit. And, um, Evan Potskin had a big hit. I mean, everybody contributed and the pitching Witten and Underhill were just lights out for two kids with zero international experience. They came in and got some of the biggest outs imaginable. And so, you know, that's a highlight just because of who the group were and how unheralded they were, but how well they played. And, um, you know, the 94, the 2004 team, you know, we, we lost to New Zealand in the gold medal game, but that was a very good team that um, played well. And then the 98 team, or the 98, the 2009 team where we hosted it in Saskatoon, you know, it was interesting the year before when it was supposed to take place. That was the, for whatever the reason, they moved the, the men's out of that cycle because of the Olympics in 2008, they didn't want to have a, a world championship. So they bumped it a year. Okay. And, you know, I've, I've always maintained that had that tournament gone when it should have, Joey Yite was the hottest hitter on the planet, 2008. Mm-hmm. Corey Guru was the top pitcher on the planet, in 2008. Um, Colin Abbott was Colin Abbott. <laughs> um, I really think if that tournament had gone a year earlier, I think we went. I, right. I, I believe that because we had too many guys at the top of their game playing extremely well. Um, you know, it's only a year later. I understand that, but a year makes all the difference in the world. Mm-hmm. And the next year we got to the, you know, we got to the semifinals and, and lost, but um, um, you know, it, it was a pleasure and an honor to, to, to be part of that program. I got to, to, you know, to, to play alongside and, and work with some of the, the best players in the country and, it's a huge commitment, you know, as you guys would know, when you're playing at that senior level and you're traveling every weekend of the summer and you're giving up vacation time to do it and time away from families, you know, those guys were, were absolute professionals and they made the experience fun and they represented the country well. And, and I've got nothing but fond memories. We had Jeff Ellsworth make that team yeah. um, in 2006, which is the first local player to make that team, I think, since Todd King and one of very few that ever had. So that was a proud moment to see another Atlantic Canadian. And you had um, Steve Mullally that made the team in the same time. So two, two East Coasters that, that got yeah. the opportunity to be part of it. So, yeah, just an exceptional group of men. Yes, they, t- they turned out all right. 
<laughs> they sure did. <laughs> they sure. And Elsie just, uh, I think he just got named to the senior staff. Yeah, right. yeah. Which is really nice to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're very pleased for him, for sure. So yeah. you moved on to the, the women's national program in 2009. How, how was that adjustment? Oh, boy, it was a big one. Mm-hmm. It was a big one. In 2009, I coached both teams that summer. Oh, did you so really? I took, wow. a leave of, I took a leave of absence from Sport Nova Scotia for 10 weeks, and I coached the women's team because they were coming off of the, the 2008 Olympics, and we needed to qualify that summer for the world championships the next year. And um, and then the men's team, of course, we were hosting in Saskatoon. So right. I was running between camps. You know, we'd have a men's camp, and I would be at that for two weeks, and then I'd leave and go to the women's camp for two or three weeks, and then I'd go back to the men's camp and, and then oh. back to finish up with the women. And so it was a huge learning curve, to be honest, uh, guys. It um, The game is the game. This is, there's no difference in the game, but there's certainly a difference in the culture and a difference in the way we are conditioned to play. And, you know, that was certainly a learning curve for me because the NCAA environment, while um, it does a lot of good things for the athletes, it, there isn't a lot of autonomy. You know, athletes are not allowed to think for themselves. They're not allowed to fail and make mistakes because – you know, some coaches making a living coaching these teams right. and they're not going to allow 18 and 19 year olds to cost them their jobs. So right. what tends to, what my experience has been is a lot of these young women arrive at the international level, 21, 22, you know, fairly capable in terms of their physical skills, but most of them have not been given the opportunity to think for themselves. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, I struggled with initially kind of figuring out, well, you know, how much should you expect them to know and how much do we teach? And, and so it really became a, a situation where I was learning from them and they were learning from me. And, you know, over the first three to four years, I think it was fair to say that, you know, I was figuring some things out on that side of it and they were kind of figuring out what kind of guy is this coach Smith and, and, and is he trying to teach us to play like men or is he trying to teach us to be good softball players? Mm -hmm. And I, and I think, you know, over time they, they came to realize that, um, you know, my goal was to make them good softball players, but I also learned a great deal about the approaches that I needed to take and the things I needed to be clear on and understand about the way they've been taught the game so that, um, you know, we could learn together. And um, I'm happy to say that 12 years later, whatever it is, 11 years later, that, um, you know, I think it's been a good fit. Um, you know, I wished we could have been home by now with a gold medal from, from yeah. Tokyo, mm-hmm. but uh, that's good. That's going to be off for a year, but just, uh, it, it's been a lot of fun. I've learned a lot. I've really enjoyed the experience. It, it's presented a very different challenge, but one that I've, I've enjoyed. And, um, I'm excited about the next 10 months and, and putting in the work to come home uh, with a gold medal. Yes. Do you, do you think having that extra year will benefit your team? I think it will, because I, I feel as though we've got three or four young women who, you know, they're a couple of years out of university and the transition in my observation has been about three years from the time they graduate school and play at the international level. It's about three years from where they're kind of, deer in the headlights and not really knowing what they're up against to really having a, a comfort level with competing and, you know, against the best in the game and, and knowing they're capable of doing so. And we've got three or four younger players that have just gotten better each year, but for sure, I think the benefit of having another winter to work with them, uh, especially on the, the mental performance side of things um, and the strength and conditioning size where they can get a little stronger and a little faster. Um, I don't think it hurts us. I, you know, I think the 
there may be other teams that that may not be as much of an advantage to, but I think for us, it, uh, I think it's an, I think it's a positive that we've got a little more time to prepare. Right on. Now we do a little thing on here, uh, with every guest where I'll throw at a player from, from your past and, uh, you can, you can comment on them however you okay. like. <laughs> <laughs> So the first, the first one I have on the list is, is Lyle Carter. Well, I think, uh, I think Lyle Carter was the best softball player to ever come out of this province. Um, you know, probably before my time and Jody's time. And there's, it, you can never compare eras, but when I watched the man play, he did everything well. He was quick as a cat. He could bunt, he could play great defense. He was a heady player. Um, he's for sure. Um, in my mind, the best player that I watched play as a young kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, next one on the list is Larry Nolan. Larry Nolan. Larry Nolan is, is, is like a big brother to me. You know, when I went to California, Larry would be about 10 years older than I am. And I lived with Larry for the two years I lived there. And, um, he really made me comfortable in California. You know, he, he, uh, exposed me to the league. He, you know, he taught me the things I needed to know about the league. He was, he was, uh, he was the conscience that I needed sometimes when I wasn't, you know, performing as well as I liked. And I, you know, I needed somebody to be there to support me, but also sometimes to give me a kick in the pants when I needed that. He played that role. He just kind of fell into it naturally. And, uh, I'll always love him for it. And I've got a ton of respect for the man. Excellent. Todd King. Todd King. <laughs> Todd's, Todd's, uh, Todd and I have developed a very strong and close friendship. And, and, um, he was one of the most intense athletes I've ever been associated with in any sport. He had a drive to perform and be the best he could be. And, you know, it showed with every at bat and every play. Um, he was extremely coachable. Uh, he's extremely smart, um, very, very talented. Um, I was really happy for him that in 95, he finally got a shot with the national team and he proved to be invaluable in his versatility. And then of course he played with the Tampa smokers for a few years and, and left the game well before he needed to be, you know, for career, for career reasons, but could have played at the international level well beyond that. But just one of the most intense, uh, loyal players. I mean, you know, through my tenure, um, and especially during the time when, you know, I left the Keats and went to the Jaguars and sort of all of the commotion that went on around it was just a steadfast friend and, and is to this day. And uh, I absolutely love the guy. All right. Uh, Gerald Musler. Musi is, uh, I think he went on to become world-class, you know, coming out of the province, um, you know, small town, Nova Scotia. I was really pleased to have had an opportunity to impact his softball career first with Keith and then with the, uh, with the Jaguar team. And, and when he went to play when with broken bow, I was, uh, I was able to be a support to him and getting him set up there and watched him go on with broken bow and have a great ISC career. And, uh, you know, you know, just a, a, a wonderful person, you know, he and his wife, Laura, their family, they, they've just been steadfast, um, people in terms of good community people, religious people, uh, whenever Gerald's home, um, we always get together. I get a postcard, uh, uh, or a Christmas card every year. Uh, we probably touch base. In fact, I saw Gerald at the Pan Ams. He was uh, the pitching coach for the U.S. men's team in Lima. 
in August. And uh, we actually, you know, had dinner together one night and, and got caught up. And he's just, uh, he's a heck of a person, a quality person, a great a great guy, and, and uh, pleased to have been associated with him for sure. Um, as a ball player and as a friend, right on. Yeah, we've been we've been in contact with Musi. He plan we plan on having him on the podcast. So yeah, for sure. Good. Yeah, that's, good. That should be a good one. Uh, yeah. My my last one is the the late great Barry Wright. Yeah, Barry Wright. Barry Wright was a player that I always thought was highly underrated. Um, when he first came out with the Dairy Queen team in 91 that we played for in Halifax, you know, he'd been playing with the Beachville Rockets and Barry was just a good athlete. He could play basketball. He was a good volleyball player. He was a good softball player. But I, he was one of these guys that for whatever the reason just kind of flew under the radar and people just didn't either know how talented he was or respect how talented he was. And I remember in 91 when he came out with the Dairy Queen team and, and kind of got comfortable at the senior level and then just blossomed from there. And very steady individual. Barry was always the type of guy that, um, you know, he'd come to me every now and then when he wasn't sure of something or he wasn't feeling quite confident about something and we'd chat for a little bit. But, you know, he grew to become one of the guys that I just counted on. You never had to say much to Barry. It was just a bit of a look or a glance that you'd give him and you knew that he knew what you were thinking. And um, just enjoyed playing with him for the seven or eight years we played together and was broken hearted a couple of years ago. He yeah. passed actually the same summer my brother passed. And so <laughs> it was an extremely tough summer, um, to be honest, Wade in June, Barry in July. Um, but um, was a hell of a guy, a quality person and has gone far too soon. Yeah, he was, he, he was an awesome guy. I got to talk to him a few times, you know, mm-hmm. around the ball field. And he, yeah. was, he was just a stand-up individual. He was scary as yeah. shit, though, too. <laughs> yeah, he was. <laughs> <laughs> He's a strong lad. <laughs> well, I remember a time we got, in a, we got in a brawl. I don't know why I was playing in Brookfield and we got in a brawl with the Keys, but whatever. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I can't remember who grabbed who, but Barry Wright came in and grabbed me from behind. And uh, yeah. I turned around and I looked at him and I went, B? He goes, yeah, let's just stand here. I was like, good idea. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I got a funny yeah. story about uh, about Barry when the '97 Canada Games year there we played uh, the Mastodons had a tournament in Shuby and we were playing the the Keys in the in a semifinal game and I was on the mound and Barry come up to bat and he hit one that almost clipped my head but somehow went out dead away center. He hit, a, he hit a home run dead away center and it almost hit my head. <laughs> so yeah, yeah he he he, was, he definitely had the power. He was a beauty. He was strong. Yeah. yeah. Very strong, very underrated. Quiet guy didn't say much, but no. uh he came to play. Yeah. yeah. One last one last yeah. thing before we go here, Mark. Uh I came across a speech where you said uh, team sport mirrors real life. And I thought that was, you know, a pretty accurate statement. Could you uh maybe elaborate a little bit on that? Well, <laughs> I've always believed, Randy, that you know, if you played a team sport, um, and especially at a competitive level, you know, you have your wins, you have your losses, you have your failures, you have your moments where you, you doubt yourself. But, you know, usually if you stick to it, keep your head down, work hard, good things happen. And I think life's very much the same. You know, we're, we're, we don't have any control over how things are going to turn out, but we sure have a lot of control over how we choose to deal with it. And, you know, I, I kind of try to live my life much like I tell the athletes, which is control the controls. Mm-hmm. You know, there are things that you are 100% in control of, like your nutrition and your fitness and your mental health and, you know, your technical, tactical skills, the things you want to work on. These are the things that no matter what's going on around you, you have 100% control over. And then there are those other pieces that, 
you know, you don't have control over, but you do have control over how you react to it. So I just, you know, to me, I tell people sport has given me everything in my life I've accomplished to this very second. And all of the lessons that I've learned through sport, I've applied to my life. And I think one of the reasons I feel I've had a pretty successful life and a pretty successful career, both as an administrator and, and as a coach and as an athlete is because of what I've learned through sport. And um, I feel sorry for people you know, kids in particular who don't have the opportunity to experience it because um, I just think it teaches you things that you otherwise may not learn over the course of a lifetime. And I think back to when I worked for the Nova Scotia Youth Center in Waterville and I was part of the hiring committee for the first year um, when, the, when the place first opened in 88. And two-thirds of the people we hired were university grads. Um, well, I say all of them pretty much that we hired. And I would say better than half of them were vars- former varsity athletes, football, hockey, basketball. And they by far had the, made the greatest connection with those young men um, that were incarcerated. And the common denominator in all of it was they came from team sport. Uh, and they knew, they, they knew how to help these young guys, um, you know, problem solve and deal with, become a little more resilient and, and deal with conflict. And uh, it was just a pleasure to watch it and to see how they work together, you know, even as a staff to help to help work with the, with the young men that were incarcerated there. And, and there's no question that when you hire a group of people, and even in my work today with Sport Nova Scotia, you know, there's no question that I have a bias for hiring people who are former athletes who have played sport because they understand competition, they understand um, there's a, usually they have a high standard or high self-expectation. And these are the things that, uh, that drives them to, to be successful. Nice. That's, well, that's a, that's a good way to, yeah. to end this. Uh, Mark, I need to thank you for coming on the podcast. Uh, you know, w- w- what we're doing here, we're trying to promote the game and, and you've been a huge part, not only in Nova Scotia, but, uh, you know, across the world at promoting the game. And, you know, I, I'd like to thank you for coming on. Well, guys, you're welcome. I, I, uh, I'm sorry it took us so long to find a common time to do it, but um, I think what you're doing is awesome for the game. And, and you're right. I, I, I had an opportunity back in May. I think Keith McIntosh and Dean Holine are doing a very similar thing in Saskatoon, and I was on with them as well. And it's, um, you know, it's just neat to see it. We, we've we've never been good at promoting our own game and telling our own stories and sharing our own history in the game. And, and you guys are moving that forward, and I think it's awesome. Awesome. Thanks, Smitty. Smitty, always good to talk to you, and I hope I can bump into you sometime soon. And, and no if, worries as well. If you see Sean Kelly, make sure you give him a good left hook to the eyeball. You or count on, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's gonna. Be, I'm gonna slide that one in. You'll, you'll probably know where it's coming from, but I'm gonna slide it in. Anyway. There you go. <laughs> right on. Okay, guys. All right. Take care. Thanks, Thanks Mark. Smitty. Bye bye. See you, right, buddy. Bye-bye. Anywhere, anywhere, anytime. anytime. Yeah, let's do time, huh? <laughs> It's just perfect timing. It's just perfect timing. Yeah, I needed Def Jams to rap a lot. Came up in the 90s, you can hear the snap crackle pop. Crack the shackles off, raps David Hasselhoff. Fell, scraped my knees, got back up and wiped the gravel off. Uh. I did this with no piggyback Like how they said P. Diddy did on Biggie's back Said you're a lion, you're lying, you little kitty cat I'm money in the bank, what's a 50 rack? Give me that 
Splitting wigs like a quarter wood Strict like the quarter law Sip a quarter liquor raw Been recording for a quarter of my life Now my headquarters and my tennis court are looking Right, uh, who wanna play with me? Rage with me Love the ones who learn to change with me Stay with me Every day me and Merck show our worth Cause nobody wanna die Underpaid and overworked, don't know Throw them up high, real high, throw them up Took a minute till they listen, now they know what's up Thought I told y'all before, no one is cold as us We shut it down and shut them up, kid Get ready Anywhere, anywhere, anytime No time for jokes Get ready This is perfect timing This the kind of beat that go 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 Yeah. I've been breaking down them doors since a younger than that one.